Decisions. I'd like to talk about decisions this morning. You notice in your notes the, the title is How to Know God's Will. And I, and I expect that many of you are like, finally, he's going to tell us exactly what God's will for my life is. Where I should go to lunch, where I should go to dinner, how, who I should marry, where I should go to school, and, and where I should work. and all. That is not where we're going this morning. But I, my prayer is that we'll give a number of general principles that will follow Paul as he's talking to the church at Colossae and saying, this is, is how you know God's will. What is the biggest decision that you will make in your life besides trusting in Christ? Getting married, is that a big one? Yeah, absolutely, okay. What else? Having children. Getting married, having children. Those are big ones that affect the rest of your life, right? Any other major decisions? Where am I going to, where am I going to school? Career? What am I going to do? Where you'll live. Absolutely. Do we live here? Do we move to Hawaii? Village West. <laughs> or Alabama. <laughs> Any other major decisions in life? Buying a house. Someone over here said that. Buying a, that's huge because you're making a 30-year commitment. Friends. Absolutely. And the decision of friends affects much more than we know. It affects so much of our life. Anything else? What ministries to be involved in? Absolutely. Know the Bible. Know the Bible. Have you ever thought when you've come to some of those decisions, what happens if I make the wrong decision? What happens? Yeah, I, I heard that a lot from students as they were considering what college to go to. What if I choose the wrong college, Pastor Ron? What if I choose the wrong college and the person I was supposed to marry was at the other college? <laughs> that affects college, career, marriage, children. Right there. One mistake and four of my decisions are gone. That's pressure. That's pressure. And it comes from what I believe is a faulty view of God's will. A faulty view and a faulty understanding of how God instructs us in His will. Don, if you could put that first slide up there. So many times we think of God's will as this line that we must follow. Right there. Okay, one more. Or keep, I guess I did have some animation. So we think of God's will as this line we have to follow, sort of like a type, tightrope. And God has somewhere where I'm going to go today, and if I go to Burger King instead of Taco Bell, I have ruined God's plan for my life today. And the snowball effect of that is huge. Think about that with the marriage question. For those of you that aren't married yet, the, the question sometimes is, how do I know I'm marrying the right person? Well, what if the person you were supposed to marry married the wrong person? Think about the snowball effect. By this point in, in history, none of us are going to marry the right person, if we think of it that way, because so many different people have made decisions that they're, they're afraid weren't in God's will. And, and so we, we have to not think of it as this tightrope, as this line that, boy, if I get off this line, I mess God's plan up. Let's just start today by saying you are not going to mess God's plan up. There's freedom in that as we come to this discussion. 
you are not going to mess God's plan up. And we'll talk about will and plan. And so what happens is we feel like we're, we're walking this tightrope and we feel like if I fall off, I will never be able to get to, back to God's will. The, the problem with that is God's word explicitly says, all have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's will. All of us have fallen short of His glory. And so, as Paul comes to the church at Colossae and he begins to talk about God's will and he begins to talk about how to know God's will and and instruct them in God's will, we have to think differently than single decisions and come back to the person of Christ and come back to the character of God and rest in that. When we, when we talk about God's will, when you see the word for God's will in, in the passage, we'll see it in verse 10. In fact, let's, let's turn right away to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14 this morning. And so from the day we heard, and Paul there is referencing that he just heard from Epaphras what's going on in the church. He's heard things to be thankful for. He's heard things that he wants to help the church through and concerns. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And we'll, we'll read on as we, as we move through the text this morning. And so Paul here is praying for the, that the church will have the knowledge of what? Of God's will. And whenever you see that word, or most often when you see that word, it's, it's a Greek word that means his desire or his wishes for us. His desire or his wishes for us. Isn't it nice to know God's desire for us? Isn't it nice to know his wishes for us? This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. And that's the word that's used here. It's, it's, it's his perfect desire for us. His desire is for us that we will never sin, for instance. His desire for us is that we will trust him completely. And so we would never say, it is God's will for me to go home and beat my wife. We would never say that because that's sin. And that's never God's will. And so we have to understand that God's will is what He desires of us. It's righteous. It's holy. It's how He created Adam and Eve to be and how He created us all to live until sin tainted that. And so in your notes, I I put there's a difference between his, His will and His plan. And here I'm treading on really interesting ground because just about every preacher that I've heard, every author that I've heard, uses different terminology for the will of God. And sometimes you get these seven definitions and seven types of God's will and these two and, and then different authors, current authors, will use the words different ways and you're like, okay, what did he mean there? What did he mean there? So I feel like I sort of need to define my terms right off the top. And so the two terms that I'd like to use as we discuss God's will and as we move through Colossians is God's will and God's plan. God's will and God's plan. If you're familiar with with some of the terms for God's will, His will is what I would refer to as His perfect will. This is His, His desire for us that we would not sin, that we would follow Him, that we would be in line in perfect communion with Him. However, 
Sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve and through every one of us since. And sin has, has tainted what his desire was. And so God then has a plan to deal with sin. He has a plan, and he had a plan from all eternity. You can't say one followed the other because they both have existed from all eternity. But he has, his plan was then to send Jesus Christ to atone for that sin. Now, we, we sometimes would want to say, well, then God planned that I sin. I think you could say it was, we are in God's plan, but he didn't plan that we sin. Do you see the difference? It becomes part of his plan, or it, it always has been, because he knows all things. But when I sin, that's not his will, but he knew it would happen, and he's already planned for that to happen. He's already planned and orchestrated all of history and all of the future to, to deal with that. And so there's a difference between his will, his perfect will, and his plan. Sometimes people refer to what I'm referring to as plan as his permissive will. But here we're talking about what is God's will for you? What is God's will for you? So as we move through the text couple of things that, that we want to pull out of how we know God's will. How do we begin to understand what God's will for us? And going back to verse 9 there, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. We'll stop there, cut there, first scene. The first thing that Paul says is that he's praying for them. And if we want to seek God's will, the first point is prayer, prayer, Prayer. Sort of like what's important in real estate? Location, location, location. What's important in the will of God? Prayer, prayer, prayer. We list it three times because do you notice how Paul describes his prayer? We have not ceased to pray for you. It is continual. It is intentional. It is regular. It is focused. This isn't just a light prayer saying, oh, I pray that you know God's will in your life. This is something that Paul is doing every day to a church he hasn't even been to. But he grandfathered, and as he hears it, his heart is so burdened for him that he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Prayer, prayer, prayer. See, prayer is tied to knowing God's will. Think about it at Christmas time. If you want to get a gift for your spouse, for your husband, for your wife, and you want to get what they want. It's always a good thing, right? Learned early on, Susie didn't want power tools. She wanted other things. And, and you want to get what, what your spouse wants. What's the best way to find that out? Ask. Ask. You never know. We may think, well, I don't know. If I ask, then I should just know that. Well, okay to ask and explore your spouse and to find out what makes them tick. And in the same way, if we want to know what God desires, what He wishes for us, what He wills for us, then we start by asking. We start by asking, which is why Paul is saying, we have not ceased to pray for you. In James 1, verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
So if we want to know God's will in our life, if we want, if we have one of those major decisions or even smaller decisions, we're like, I don't know what to do. First question is, how much time have I spent on my knees? Have I even bothered to regularly, intentionally, and intensely ask God, what do you want? What do you want? Along with this, I think it's really key to understand that Paul is praying for the church. Now, they should be praying for God's will as well, but we see the power of of bringing a brother or a sister in Christ along on the ride and bringing them into the equation and saying, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me that I would know God's will? Will you pray for me regularly? Will you pray for me intensely? With, With intention? Will you take this seriously? Because that's the example we see from Paul. Flip over to Colossians 4.12, just at the end of the book. Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Listen to what his prayer is. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Here again at the end of the, the chapter, Paul bookends it by saying, I'm not the only one praying for you. Epaphras, who you sent, he's praying for you. And did you catch the description of it? He's struggling on behalf, on your behalf in his prayers. The idea is he's working at it. It's intense. He's taking it seriously. That you may know and be assured in the will of God. If you have a decision you're facing... I urge you to go to a brother or sister in Christ. Go to two or three of them in Christ and say, will you start being a prayer warrior for me? And you may have to define, don't just say, will you pray for me? Yeah, I'll pray for you. Lunch is coming. Will you be a prayer warrior for me? Will you struggle in prayer? Will you pray continually? That is the example that we have of how to pray for God's will. I'd like to ask a question, and I'll take a show of hands just to warn you there's a little bit of interaction this morning. How many of you would be willing for someone else in this church to come to you and say, will you pray for me that I know God's will in this situation? How many of you would be willing to struggle in prayer, to pray continually, and to take it seriously enough to pray every day in an intense way for that person? Just raise your hands. Keep your hands up for a minute. Now, those of you that have decisions to make or are wondering what God's will is, look around. Your church family is here ready to pray. Every hand here is ready to pray for you. Ask one of those people before the day is done. You can put your hands down. It's being the body, being the church, and we see it in Paul and Epaphras. So the first step to knowing God's will, to, to knowing the fullness of His will, is prayer, prayer, prayer. I think another word that's important to see in that verse, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. That word for filled there, it might be, okay, so I just have a whole lot of knowledge of His will. The, the Greek word there has the, the definition of being controlled by. Being completely controlled by. Think in terms of it's the same word that we use for being filled by the Spirit. 
When we're filled by the Spirit, it doesn't just mean, oh, I have a nice, friendly relationship with the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit means to let Him control our lives, doesn't it? To let Him have sway in our lives. That's the same word that Paul is using here when he says to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That it has sway in our lives. That it makes a difference. See, the Hebrew thought there was not a difference between knowledge and action. If you knew it, you did it. If you didn't do it, you didn't know it. We, we, we have two compartments. Knowledge and action, or the application of that knowledge. To the Hebrew mind, you couldn't separate the two, and I think they were right. Because what we really know, we do. And so for them, this would have made sense to be filled with, to be controlled by, to be influenced by the will of God. So the question we have to ask right from the start is, are we going to really seek God's will? Do we want to know God's will? Because to know God's will means I have to do God's will. That's where the next verse is going to go. And so we need to make sure our heart is right as we're praying for God's will. Do we want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Because if we are, we will be radically changed. And we will follow it. First principle of knowing God's will, prayer, prayer, prayer. Putting ourselves in subjection to God. Second is to remember that every decision is a spiritual decision. Every decision is a spiritual decision. Staying in verse 9 there, the last phrase that we didn't add on, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the in there is the means or, or how we get to know God's will. And it's with spiritual wisdom and all spiritual wisdom and the, those adjectives there apply to both wisdom and understanding. And so if we, if we had to put it in a way that we would really understand it, it would be in all spiritual wisdom, in all spiritual knowledge or understanding. And the, the spiritual is highlighted there. And the difference that Paul is making is the difference between secular wisdom and especially in the early form of Gnosticism where knowledge and the mystery of knowledge and was being elevated to Godhood, he was making a difference saying it's not about secular knowledge. It's not about what you know. It's about spiritual knowledge. It's about spiritual insight, spiritual wisdom. And so Paul's point here is that every decision is a spiritual decision. It's not something that we can compartmentalize again. And so many times as, as we make decisions and make decisions in life, isn't it easy to have two categories of decisions? We have our secular decisions. And we have our spiritual decisions. And so for our secular decisions, we talk to people that are wise in those fields and we make the wisest decision we can. And spiritual decisions, we talk to some brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe an elder, and make a spiritual decision. And Paul's point is, God's will is found through spiritual wisdom and through spiritual understanding. They're all spiritual decisions. You may say, well, I'm deciding which, which of two jobs to take. And so I need to evaluate the salary and the drive and the benefits. No, those are secondary. Those are secondary. Primarily, it's a spiritual decision 
How can I serve God in this job? What does God want me to do? That's the first question. And that's what Paul's saying. That's what he means by every decision is a spiritual decision. How will this decision impact me spiritually and the kingdom spiritually, not my checkbook? It's a different way of thinking, isn't it? But it's beginning to say every decision, including where I go to school, including where I work, including where I go to lunch, is a spiritual decision that the Holy Spirit wants to give insight for. And so Paul says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The two were together. It wasn't enough that they learned the Gospel from Epaphras in verse 7. They had to put it into practice. So I encourage us not to compartmentalize our decisions. Not to have secular and spiritual decisions, but to see them all as spiritual decisions. To go to God's Word and evaluate every decision by God's Word to seek biblical counsel for what we decide. Even where we live. Someone mentioned that as a big decision. Where we live. There's all kinds of factors that come into that. What are the schools like? What's the commute like? What's the traffic like? Those are secondary. Primarily is how will God use where I live for the kingdom? That's the question. That makes it a spiritual decision rather than a secular decision. So we have prayer, prayer, prayer. And secondly, remembering that every decision is a spiritual decision. Third point there, and this is, this point encompasses the rest of the verses. Does your choice help you please God? You might say, well, Pastor Ron, you've already said that several times with the spiritual decision. Well, we're just following what Paul says. Does your choice help you please God? Let's read verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And in your text, the first words there are so as. And that so means it's tied to what he just said about the will of God. And what Paul is saying is if you're following the will of God, these things will occur. And so follow me for a minute. If these things occur when I'm following the will of God... I now have a way to to test what I'm doing and my decisions to see if these things will come from those. It's it's a way of seeing a big picture of what God's will for me is. And, And instead of thinking of God's will as a line, thinking of it as a box and saying, okay, this is the big picture of what God wants for me. My decision must be within that. Does that make sense? And so he's giving us some outcomes of God's will, but those become our tests for our decisions. And you see in the beginning of verse 10, he gives two that are tied together, that are parallel. The second one expands on the first. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and then the phrase that that expands that, fully pleasing to Him. Those in, in the sentence structure are one thought. That's the actually the, the, the summary thought for the rest of the passage. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And, and walk means our conduct, our life, should be in a manner worthy of the Lord or acceptable to God. 
my, my first thought when I read that is, can anything I do be worthy of God? Can anything I do? But then we're going to get to that in the verses to come when we see the righteousness of God that transferred me from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that's how we're able to walk worthy when we live in Christ. And so the question is, is this worthy of God? Is this suitable for the Lord? And then Paul expands that to say fully pleasing to Him. I love that. We can please God. We can make God happy. He can enjoy and be satisfied in what we do. That is His will. And and those two phrases summarize everything that's to come. Paul is saying, you want to know God's will? It's to live in a manner worthy of God to please Him. Every decision we make, is this worthy of God? Does this please God? I'm convinced, actually, that if we even just ask those two questions on our decisions, that would solve about 90% of it. Is this worthy of God? Is this pleasing to God? See, those, those cover scriptural commands. Those cover obedience. Because we already know that anything that is sinful is not pleasing to God. And so we, we right from the, the start, know that God's will is to obey His Word. And He would never ask us to sin. The text goes on though. So do, does your choice help to please God? starting at bearing fruit, and we don't really see it in English too well, but Paul now has four different participle phrases that are, that are parallel to each other, and he's going to give four different, a list of four things of what it means to please God. And these span several verses, as Pastor Andrew talked about last week, sometimes verse breakdowns are helpful, sometimes not so much. In this case, it would be great if a new verse started at bearing fruit in every good work, because that's where the list starts. And so we have four things, and I think on the back page of your notes I have, have room for those. Four tests that test whether we're pleasing God, whether we're, we're walking in a manner worthy of Him. The first, as you read in verse 10 there, bearing fruit in every good work. God's will is that we bear fruit, that we live a fruitful life, that we serve Him. And by serving Him, by doing His work, we bear fruit. See, each of these, and as we look at all four, each of these is about living life to please God as opposed to living life to please me. And that's really the crux of the issue when we say, how do you know God's will? It's, in my decision, am I going to please God or am I going to please me? That, that's, that's what it boils down to. And so each of these four things attack a different area of self-centeredness. And in this case, God is saying, you will bear fruit if you are in my will. If we are not bearing fruit, if we are not serving Him, we are out of God's will. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created for good works. The youth theme this year is save to serve. It's the principle. God's will is that we bear fruit. And it attacks self-centeredness because self-centeredness says, I I, I sort of like being lazy. I, I could watch all six Star Wars in a row. 
Not that that's lazy for some of you. Well, never mind. <laughs> I could sit and do nothing, and, and, and it attacks the self-centeredness of I and my desires and my idleness is supreme. Because God says, no, you were created to bear fruit. And so in our decisions, is this God's will? One of the questions should be, does it bear fruit? Will it allow me to serve? Will it allow me to bear fruit? Let's read on. Also in verse 10. So we have bearing fruit in every good work. The next phrase is, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And increasing in the knowledge of God. God's will is that we are growing in our spiritual walk. That we're learning about Him. That our knowledge of Him is increasing. We never know it all. We never know it all. One of my children always tells me he knows more than me. But we never know it all. There's always more to learn about God. And so we should be in the Word. We should be active about it. We should be in church on Sunday, listening to God's Word, listening to it taught. We should make that a priority. We should be studying God's Word. We should be reading books from godly men and women about God. Because His will is that we are growing in our knowledge of Him. It's interesting, sometimes when when cults come to the door, have you ever had the experience where they're, they're coming and... They're, they're, they're attacking the Christian faith or sharing their faith and you ask them questions. And isn't it frustrating sometimes when it feels like they know what they believe better than we know what we believe? We've got to change that. We've got to know what we believe. We've got to make it a priority to be studying God's Word. To, to take the effort that it takes to know what we believe. Tax self-centeredness again. Because self-centeredness doesn't want to take the effort. But Paul says, pleasing God means that you're increasing in knowledge of Him. You're increasing in knowledge of Him. We read on in verse 11, even though it feels like a change of thought, it's actually just another phrase in the same list, in the same structure. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with, with joy. Let me read that verse again. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Let us see there is God's will is that we persevere through difficulties by His strength. That we persevere through difficulties by His strength. That we live a strengthened life and there's several things to unpack out of this. And this one's hard for us because we are not a patient people. We are not a patient people. I get irritated sometimes at the microwave because that minute isn't going by faster before I can have my meal. It's a minute. Sometimes I stop it at 40 seconds and eat it cold because I can't wait. And I'm reading stats about impatient people, and I'm like, oh, this, is, this, this one was convicting this week. Survey of 1,003 adults done by Associated Press said, it just was talking about patience. While waiting in line at an office or a store, most people take an average of 17 minutes to lose their patience. Not really sure how they surveyed this. Do they have cameras and see when they started like yelling at other customers or something? On hold on the phone, most people lose their patience in nine minutes. 
Women lost their patience after waiting in line for about 18 minutes. Men lost it after 15 minutes. We're not a patient people. And so when we read a phrase for all endurance and patience, we start to twitch a little bit because we don't like words like that. But here's the point that Paul is making. We are to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And and catch that, when he uses the word according, he's tying how much power or dynamis, which we get dynamite from, how much power we have available to endure and have patience, he's tying that with what? God's glorious might. When does God's glorious might end? It doesn't. And Paul is deliberately making a comparison of saying, you want power? This is the power that's available to you. It would be like if, if two people, maybe I'm standing up here and Albert Pujols comes in, baseball player from the Angels, um, godly man, and, and we say, okay, we're going to teach people how to play baseball. And I'm going to teach you how to play according to my skills. And Albert Pujols is going to teach you according to his skills. Who would you go to? (laughs) Thanks, whoever said that. (laughs) You'd go to Albert Pujols' skills because his his skills are bigger. There's a wealth of skills. He has more to offer. And that's such a sad, poor comparison to, to the might of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And so when, when I read this verse, I think, man, the times that I feel like giving up, the times that I feel like I can't go on, that's because I'm doing it under my power. I haven't even tapped into His glorious might that never is exhausted, praise God. It never ends and it's always available if I will come to Him. And it attacks self-centeredness because I want to do it on my own. And I want to quit when things get hard. And I want to, I don't want to endure. And I don't want to be patient. And God is saying, when, when you give in to those things, when you become impatient, when you don't endure, when you quit, it's because you are not tapping into my power. And you're trying to do it on your own. And that stings. Maybe it doesn't for anyone else. But it stings. That last phrase, for all endurance, and patience. For all endurance and patience. The word for endurance there comes from, from running a race and when you get tired in a race eventually and, and when, when the hill is steep and you just don't think you can go on, you keep going. And, and the endurance side, it has the idea of when circumstances get hard. When external circumstances get hard. And I know as... as we as a church family have walked through life with each other for many years now. I know that just about every family in here can say, man, there's times when circumstances were so hard we didn't know if we could continue. Circumstances beyond our control that I don't understand, and I don't understand what God is doing. And Paul says here, God's will is that you endure. That you have endurance Because by having endurance, you are showing off God's might. You are showing His glory. If we quit and don't have endurance, 
we are showing off our own might and the lack thereof. So endurance, bearing up under circumstances, the second word there, patience, enduring hardship, it really has to do with interpersonal relationships. Patience with people. Not that we ever get impatient with people. But Paul is saying that you have endurance because of God's power in circumstances and you have patience because of God's power and His strengthening you with people. And that perseverance in both circumstances and with people is a display of God's might. And that is to His glory, which is why it's His will. When we feel like quitting, when we feel like giving up, like there's no hope, we need to come back to saying, God's will is that I continue. God's will is that I trust Him and and expose His might to anyone that is watching. And it's a direct attack on self-centeredness. And I've, I used the example Thursday night that, that Mark and I climbed Mount Baldy. And I've got to say, I wanted to quit. I was done. What kept me going was my son was already at the top. And Susie wanted me to come home with him. It's silly, but it kept me going. What will keep you going when difficulties get hard, when people get hard? It can only come as we come back to God and say, I need your help. You have more might than I could ever imagine by your strength. Finally, the last phrase that we see in this sequence, and this one gets expanded into three points as well. But the last phrase in verse 12 there, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. And you may notice we skipped the words with joy at the end of 11. Grammatically, it's really difficult to know if those go with the the patience and endurance or if those go with the giving thanks because they could go either way in the Greek. Uh, Most commentaries, and I would agree with them, think that it's more on the idea of giving thanks. It applies to both. It's true of both. But God's will is that we live lives characterized by joyful thanks to the Father. That's the fourth point in your notes. God's will is that we live lives characterized by joyful thanks to the Father. The will of God is gratitude. The will of God is thanksgiving. If we find ourselves being tempted to complain and to be upset about things, that is not the will of God. His will is for joyful thanks to the Father. Two Christian authors were talking about this, and one of them says gratitude is one of the is one of the characteristics of any genuine Christian. The other one answered by saying, gratitude is not one of the characteristics, it is the primary characteristic. And the reason being is when we give thanks, and when we're able to give thanks about things, we're able to move beyond ourselves and our own emotions and our own feelings about things and go back to who God is and what He's done, which is where He's going to go in these three verses. It's coming back to pleasing God because we live for Him. And so we want to be people of chronic gratitude, chronic thanksgiving, and not be people of chronic complaints. Because when we see the enormity of the work of Christ, when we grasp how little we deserve it, 
the only thing we can do is be grateful to God. When we live in Christ, we're overwhelmed by the work that He he has done. We're overwhelmed with gratitude that He has plucked us from, from the domain of darkness. And if we are overwhelmed with that gratitude, we can't help but have it overwhelm everything we do and every relationship we have and every situation we're in. And so Paul says, give thanks to the Father. And it's one of this list of what it means to please God. This one's hard too. It is so much easier to complain, to be ungrateful. Parents, I bet you pretty much had to teach your kids to be grateful. Not too many parents have to teach their children to be ungrateful. Something you work at and you train. It's that important. How do we choose to be thankful and not complain in difficulty? Because it's a choice. It comes down to a choice. Am I going to be enamored with what God has done or am I going to focus on everything around me? That's the choice. Matthew Henry, you've probably read some of his commentaries. He was once accosted by thieves and robbed of his purse. That's what it was called. He wrote these words in his diary. And these, these just go to my heart. Let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. <laughs> and fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. That's a godly man choosing to give thanks in a difficult situation. I'd like to read the rest of the verses because this is how we can do that. I could sit here and say you need to choose not to complain. You need to choose to be thankful like Matthew Henry. And it could last for a day or two, but we have to understand the basis. And so we read on in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father... And three things. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And the inheritance here was a word that the Israelites used for when they were taking the land, when they were coming into the land. The inheritance was the land that their tribe was going to receive. And actually, each of these threes, in each of these three, Paul is, is referring back to the Exodus and saying what we could call the new Exodus, that, that that God now has a new inheritance for us. It's not land in Israel. It's part of His kingdom for all eternity. And so why, why thankfulness? Why be overwhelmed with what God has done? The first thing is God has qualified us to share in the inheritance when we don't deserve it. Nothing we do deserves it. We are sinners by nature. And the only thing we deserve is to be in the kingdom of Satan in hell. And God qualified, notice we don't do anything, He qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. In the saints of light. We are adopted fully. Adopted completely to where we even have an inheritance. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 13 goes on to the second thing to be thankful for. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has delivered us from the domain or the rule of darkness. The word for delivered there means to rescue, to pluck us out of. And we were in the domain of darkness, just like if you think of Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, when the people came, the winter, the, the white witch, winter was controlling the land. It was the dom- her domain. And God plucks us out of Satan's domain, his authority, his control, and he rescues us. Just as he did with the children of Israel out of Egypt. But now he rescues us from the domain that is much worse, the domain of Satan. Finally, as we look at the the rest of the verse, and this is just incredible stuff. Third thing to be thankful for, to be overwhelmed with, is he transferred us to Jesus' kingdom. The verse says, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Literally, the son that he loves. And the imagery here is is a word that they would use for when, when... a country would come in and take over another country. And we saw this with the Syrians and some others. They'd, they'd take another country and often they would take the whole population and transfer them to the, another country. Transfer them home to assimilate or transfer them to a strange country so they didn't have any power or control. And that's the word that's used here except in a positive way that our whole self is transferred from what Satan controls to God in heaven, to His kingdom, and we are fully adopted and we are sons and daughters of the King. That is worth being thankful for. And that should cover everything we, we experience here on earth. The victorious King has uprooted the population out of sin and relocated him to his kingdom for all those that believe in him. Finally, the verse says, talking of Jesus in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, we've been bought, we've been purchased, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. How do we know God's will? Go through those four questions. Does this please God? But ultimately, in my decisions, does this represent a decision that someone in the kingdom of Satan would make? Does this represent a a decision that someone in the kingdom of God would make? This morning we want to celebrate communion. And I'd like our focus this morning to be on, on using this as an opportunity to be thankful to the Father, just like Paul instructed, to be thankful to the Father for those three things. Because He's qualified us to share in an inheritance. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to Jesus' kingdom because Jesus died on the cross. Because He paid the price to redeem us, to ransom us. We could not do it on our own. And, And the bread represents His body that was broken on that cross. The wine represents His blood that paid for our forgiveness when we couldn't. And so as we come today, this is an incredible act of thanksgiving. Of saying, God's will is that I am overwhelmed by this table and what it symbolizes. And that affects every decision I make. 
Because when we're overwhelmed by this, and what we know affects what we do, that takes care of the decision of what's God's will. Thank you, Lord God. May we be serious about wanting to do your will. Lord, I'm convicted that I think so many times we know it, we just don't want to do it. May we be a congregation that is willing to do your will, to pray about it, to make every decision a spiritual decision, and to above all please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name.